Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. John, we have a great show lined up for today. You know, we're going to start off talking about uh, talking retirement with your spouse, right? Yeah, that's uh, sometimes a difficult conversation if you haven't had it. And um, we, we do see that, Steve. People come in and talk about retirement, and they may have differing opinions, and they want us to be kind of like the tiebreaker. Yeah, sometimes we have to kind of be a mediator. It's can be uncomfortable. It can, but at, at least you're, you know folks are talking about it. So we're going to give you some tips to uh, to go through that process and um, just kind of tips of the the trade here. That's right. And then we're going to follow that up with your investment DNA. You know, did you know that some some of our investment choices are kind of hardwired into our system? Mm, yes, yeah, I see they, that they are. And uh, so, but it's it, it's helpful to recognize those ahead of time so that you're. So you can have a discipline process and you don't let them lead you into your investment choices. And, and so that's what we're going to talk about here. It's a good article out of the Wall Street Journal. So, um, But uh, by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Vestor Pro with over 23 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Vestor Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years. And we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. We are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, go check us out on our website, moneymd.net. We have a lot of tools out there. We have a link to the podcast and videos and some other um, tools that we've been kind of building over time. We get some good feedback from that, so go check that out. Also, Facebook, we have a um, a page that we post uh, periodically. We put a prescription of the week out there, video style, and we also have a Twitter account. And uh, what I'm hearing that we're tweeting a lot more these days. I don't know if that's because someone else has taken over the tweeting, but it it's um, it's it's improved. So we have Donald Trump on our staff. Yeah, now. no, he's not. No, he's definitely not <laughs> tweeting far. So, but he's tweeting somewhere else. I'm sure. Yeah, he's he tweets very often. That's that's good. Well, uh, do check us out on our website. Also, email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. But we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yes, yeah, Steve, we've talked about this subject um, quite frequently, and it's um, it's it's a shame, and it's really sad. But you know, the the crimes against seniors, financial crimes, is pretty prevalent. And um, last year, there was about thirty six billion dollars which was lost or taken from seniors. And the surprising statistic is, and that's surprising, obviously, the the size of that, but. Over two-thirds, or about two-thirds of the crimes committed against seniors are from people that they, they know. Yeah, that is very, <clears throat> very sad statistic. And, um, you know, I just think it, it goes to show that you need to have more than one person involved, you know, with your elderly parents or grandparents and, uh, you know, a couple family members to kind of have some somebody, you know, just... Just to add some confidence. Checks and balances. Checks and balances and some confidence that they're getting taken care of well and their finances are, you know, in the right hands. But, uh, but yeah, that's a sad, sad statistic. So you really need to look out for that. Mm, yeah. And, you know, you can get power of attorneys and so forth on that. But I agree. Having a, a separate um, family member periodically, maybe just reporting out uh, quarterly would, would probably work. On yeah, the, to other siblings and yeah, other just family members. Up, just keeping kinda, other people up to date. Right, exactly. So, good fact of the week, though. And that leads up to our first topic here, and that is talking retirement with your spouse. 
So how do you do that, John? Yeah, very carefully. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> you got to have a plan. So this is from uh, Nerd Wallet from Andrea Combs. And, um, you know, if you haven't talked to your spouse about retirement, you know, you're not alone. I mean, there's there are a lot of people that have not. But it really is a crucial conversation. If you want your retirement dreams to become a reality, 36% of couples say they haven't even thought about a retirement plan. And almost half of them disagree about how much money they'll need in retirement. Uh, that's according to a Fidelity uh, survey that was done back in 2015 uh, of about a thousand couples, and people are more comfortable talking about you know things like you know sex or taxes than 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 money, and uh, it's kind of surprising. There's uh, you know when you start talking about retirement, there's certainly um, you know a lot of emotions involved in it, and people just want to avoid it, so they. They just kind of brush it under the rug, and and we do see that folks come in, and you can tell they're on kind of different pages, and we do have to, you know, make sure that they're kind of working towards the same goals, and the goals are actually defined. So, um, so here's how to begin. You know, the million dollar question, um, you know, that undergirds all the other retirement questions are: Are you saving enough to be on track to support your future lifestyle? And um, you know, working together to determine this, um, you can use a retirement calculator is certainly one step. Um, you can go to an advisor and they'll give you some insight and so forth. And that can help start the conversation. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, when you're thinking about retirement, it can be tough for some people, you know, and you may find out that you're not exactly on the same page. You know, some people associate it with kind of getting old or, you know, kind of a relative's gloomy nursing home experience, maybe, you know, and if that's true for your spouse, I mean, you need to plan your conversations carefully, you know, don't bring up retirement. Maybe if you're, Either of you is tired or stressed um, and just, um, you know, just just kind of be careful, you know, that you go into that with a plan and you 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 talk about the fun parts of retirement, not just the negative parts. You know, there really shouldn't be any negative parts, but, yeah, you know, some people associate it with some negative things. So you just want to uh, have the right attitude and maybe start that off with a glass of wine. Yeah, that's right. Nice meal. Um, you know, we call them money dates. I mean, there you go. Those, those are kind of fun. You kind of sit down and you dream a little bit and you, you talk um, about where you're, where you're going. Um, you know, get away from the house, get away from the laundry, the dishes, the kids, and, and talk about it. I know you guys, you know, you've mentioned you once a year go out, not once a year, but you talk about it at the beginning of the year. Right. We have like a what planning, your goals are. planning date, you know, kind yeah. of go out and talk about what our goals are going to be for the year. That's right. Um, and, and Tammy and I do something similar to that. So it's just sitting down and, and kind of getting on the same page as you start the the year or even as you, you know, approach retirement. And there's, uh, you know, another recommendation here, open-ended questions. And, you know, don't make demands when you talk to your spouse about retirement. Instead, think about an open-ended question. It's non-threatening. And one way you can start doing that is um, is just, you know, talking about maybe what one of your uh, neighbors did or friends did. And, you know, we see a lot of people that are buying RVs and traveling around the country. So you can say, well, you know, Joe and his wife are going to do this. What do you think about it? And just kind of open it up to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, another idea is just to kind of envision what retirement might look like. You know, maybe ask your spouse, um, you know, when you think about retirement, um, when you wake up in the morning, what, what time of the day do you think you would wake up if you're retired? Or what would you see out the window? You know, um, maybe it's a beach, the mountains, you know, the 
the current, you know, beautiful mm-hmm. view out your window. I don't know. I mean, just kind of just kind of broach the conversation with open-ended questions, like you said, and you know, start getting some visions of what retirement would would look like and feel like. Yeah, I had a, a meeting with some clients this week, and they're going to retire next year. And just talking with them about um, their visions on retirement, they're going to buy an RV and they're going to you know go out and um, see yeah. America. And they've been talking about it and planning on it for quite a while now. But they, it is something that has been kind of in the forefront and. Don't be surprised if you disagree on some points um, or even, you know, quite a few points as well. But that's the purpose is is just talking about it, making sure you're on the same page. There are going to be compromises, right? Absolutely. You're going to have to figure out, um, you know, what one spouse wants to do versus the other. And after some initial discussions, you might be ready to address, you know, some more concrete questions together. And here's kind of some of the questions that you might want to ask is, you know, what are you going to do in retirement? People often, uh, you know, forget to consider their day-to-day lives. And this conversation happened this week with that couple. It's, this person is um, has done a lot for their work and their job, and, and so they, they, they like feeling wanted and needed. And so maybe working for a nonprofit, that there's a lot of right. folks that will be able to use their skills um, going forward. But you got to figure out what you're going to do. Yeah, that's right. You know, and what—, what- we find when we open this discussion with people is that they really just don't talk about it that much sometimes, or, you know, maybe something like, what are your days going to look like? Um, You know, maybe you want to travel and your spouse prefers to stay home and garden, you know, differences around discretionary spending um, aren't necessarily a problem, but um, you know, in some cases, one spouse might want to travel a lot and the other says they really don't. Um, So you, you have to, open those discussions and, and just get an idea of what is your idea of retirement and, and come to a consensus on what that's going to look like. And, you know, obviously it, it needs to be a fun place for both of you. Sure, sure. And sometimes, um, you know, some of these financial decisions are very tricky. One spouse wants to downsize to a smaller house and the other one doesn't. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, we see that often of trying to figure out what is, you know, each person's retirement is a little bit different and they have different goals and dreams and talking about it. What are you going to do on a day-to-day basis? I think it's a great question. Another one here is, is when are you going to retire? About half the couple surveyed by Fidelity, they disagreed on when they're going to retire. And that's really a kind of a worrisome finding given that your retirement age is really important in determining how much you need to save, right? That's right. That's that, right. That kind of drives that number quite a bit. And the good news is, is figuring out at what age you want to retire can really lead to some deeper conversations, having to wrestle with that. And some other similar questions, um, you know, will get you talking about money and expectations. And it can be a very valuable conversation. And another really important question is, is are you going to retire at the same time? I, we see people having different strategies on that. The couple I met with this week, they were basically like, no, we want to go out at, you know, at the same time. They, they both work at a similar company and um, they don't want one spouse to retire and the other one to continue to work. But, but we see variations of that. Yeah. You know, I met with a couple uh, the other, well, it was one of the, the two, um, the man, the other uh, month and, he said, you know, when they when the idea of retirement came up, he said, well, he's going to move. You know, he wants to move to a smaller downsize a house. And his wife said, well, she's not moving. So Uh-oh. that's where they there was a stalemate. Yeah, he's moving. She's not moving. <laughs> and did you I break was it? Like, well, that couldn't end well. Well, I didn't meet with her. I just okay. met with him. So I don't know exactly where it stands right now. But, I, you know, I just 
you know, told him, hey, y'all really need to get on the same page here. Obviously, this isn't going to end well if if that's your stalemate and neither of yeah, you are going to. That's not a good answer. That's, that's not a good answer. So uh, you, you don't want to retire with that, you know, kind of disagreement on the front burner. Um, but, yeah, another question, though, is, you know, what are your top priorities in retirement? And your financial situation will determine what you can do in retirement. So it makes sense to prioritize what's most important to you. So start prioritizing and then ask, you know, what is it going to take for us to afford that? What can we do financially in retirement? And be realistic, you know. I mean, if you have five things on your list, you may be able to get three of them done, um, but that's why you prioritize. Or you may be lucky enough that you can afford all five um, and if you planned well, hopefully you can. That's the idea of doing retirement planning way ahead of time. But you're going to have to prioritize and know what you can afford to do in retirement. Yeah, and that really gets to the the last point here, and and um, just kind of summarize. Uh, and one thing they didn't really talk about is is the budgeting piece of this. Um, when we have people come in, and you, generally the question that folks have is, "Am I on track um, for retirement?" And our question back to them is, is well, how much money do you need? Exactly. <laughs> right. If you don't know how much money you need, we can't tell you if you're on track or not. So, you know, we look at Social Security strategies. We look at pensions. Then you have investments that can also provide you income. We try to get you out of debt. Um, but, you know, that whole process um, can be complicated. Um But it gives you a lot of information. If you can go through and do a retirement plan that has a number for income um, and you can match that up to your budget, it's usually pretty easy to retire. So we can kind of give a thumbs up on the date and the amount of retirement. But then on the the client side, they have to come back and say, yep, that's a good number and that's a good date. So um, great, great conversation here. I think, Steve, you know, talking about this this stuff, sometimes it's, I don't know if it's taboo talking about money with your spouse per se, but it's just not a comfortable topic that a lot of people like addressing. Yeah, sometimes that's right. And planning is the key. You know, start early, having those conversations early. And, of course, do planning around retirement long before you get to retirement so that you know where you're headed and you both have the same vision of what that's going to look like financially as well as, you know, when you get there, what activities are going to do. So it's a great topic. All right. And that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question um, comes from prospects. Sometimes they're looking at working with a financial advisor and they're come in and they're talking with us and they're asking us, um, you know, what, what, what do you stand for? So what are some of the qualities that someone should look for in an advisor? And I mean, I think I kind of, you know, go back to, you know, the Dave Ramsey discussion of the heart of a teacher, you know, not right. trying to sell someone, but just educate them on what you do and why you do it. Um, when you leave the meeting, you should have, um, a better understanding of your situation and also kind of what they do. So it's not a sales pitch. It's a, it's a discussion and an education session, really. Yeah, that's right. And I think part of that is integrity. Obviously, you're looking for somebody that has a very high integrity um, that wants to, to share with you and, and lead you in the right direction, not somebody that wants to sell, sell you, like you said. Of course, experience is really important. Um, you know, somebody with the, that's a fiduciary that has mm-hmm. your best yep. interest at heart, that's fee-based and not trying to sell you commissions and, you know, not trying to sell you a lot of expensive annuities or life insurance. So, but yeah, that's a great question. You need to think about that before you sit down with somebody, you know, what, what type of questions are you going to ask and what qualities are you looking for? So great question. All right. And that leads up to our next topic here. And that is your investment DNA. You know, the question is, is your DNA directing your investments 
or do you have a, a disciplined process that's directing that? And this is based on an article out of the Wall Street Journal, um, Jason Zwig, um, back a while ago, the ABCs of Investors DNA. And But you know, when you start thinking about investing, um, you know, investing is a learned behavior. And, um, you know, all of your decisions, you might think that all of your decisions are based on logical evaluation of the facts, when in, in fact, the the facts say otherwise, you know, it's not really a logical decision for most people. A recent study shows that your DNA might actually have more to do with your investment choices than your careful analysis of the options that you have. Of course, your experiences also play a big factor in your decisions pertaining to your investments. In fact, I mean, consider the, the late Benjamin Graham. Um, he was Warren Buffett's mentor and the author of Security Analysis and The Intelligent Investor. Um, so he's a very renowned uh, investor from back in the early uh, 20th century. And Graham's widowed mother was a small-time speculator. She was wiped out during the panic of 1907 uh, when he was just 13 years old. And Graham never forgot the humiliating experience of that, um, a moment in his childhood when his mother sent him to cash a check and the bank teller asked the manager if Mrs. Graham was good for $5. Hmm. So that had a big impact on him. So he grew up as a result of that to favor companies that were universally kind of despised as by investors. Um, they were stocks that were way out of favor. Um, we call those value stocks. And, um, you know, he liked to say they were stocks that were worth more dead than alive. You know, he resoundingly beat the market, though, um, over his multi-decade investing career by investing in value stocks, stocks that were out of favor. So he was he was renowned for that philosophy, and it was kind of based on his his experiences. Yeah, or take the uh, late Sir John Templeton. He grew up the son of a country lawyer in, in Tennessee. Templeton's father was also a speculator. He traded in cotton futures, and he arrived home one day and told his young sons, boys, we've lost it all. We're ruined. Um, Templeton had worked odd jobs to scrounge his way through college and graduate school, and in 1939, at the age of 27, Templeton told his broker to buy $100 worth of every stock that was under a dollar per share, <clears throat> and he quadrupled his money in four years. So you think about a low-priced stock probably as a right. value stock. Value and, stocks, yeah. And he said, people all are always asking me where the investing outlook is good. He said, but that's the wrong question. He said, the right question is, is where is the outlook most miserable? It's interesting. Not many people ask that. No, definitely not. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's obvious that our experiences in life do help shape you know, the way we invest and our ambitions. Um, you know, I, I had a few hard times when I grew up and I paid my own way through college. And that certainly helped shape the way that I think about certain things and how I value education and opportunities to learn. Um, but it only makes sense that our experiences also help shape how we view risk and opportunities. You know, our experiences, um, their experiences certainly shaped, you know, Graham and Templeton to favor value and stocks, cheap stocks, over the fast-moving growth stocks. But that preference might also have been kind of encoded into their genes. Um, there's another renowned investor called Seth Klarman who once remarked that uh, research on fruit flies 
showed that most of them will swarm toward the light, but there's a small minority that appear to be genetically pre-programmed or dispositioned to stay away from light. You know, he called those kind of jokingly the tiny contrarians, you know, the insect equivalent of deep value investors. Um, So he went on to speculate that most people might possess a dominant gene for chasing hot performance over in the overhyped assets, while only a minority have the recessive value genes that confer a patient preference for whatever is battered and unpopular. Um, so, you know, stocks that are out of favor. So uh, I think that's interesting, though. Yeah, I think our genes definitely, you know, there are people that are more predispositioned genetically to, to you know, not follow the crowd. Sure, sure. And a recent study finds that a lot of investors, in fact, have a genetic preposition, predisposition to hunt for bargains in the stock market, a.k.a. value stocks. Although the environment you grew up in, you know, will also powerfully, you know, shape you as as an investor. And in the study, there are three economists. Um, I won't pronounce their names per se. They're all over the world. They examined the genetic makeup and uh, investment portfolios of 35,000 twins in Sweden. That seems like a lot of twins. That's a lot of twins in Sweden. I guess it was over a long period of time, John. You know, yeah, I mean, identical twins, they share 100% of their DNA, while fraternal twins share about the same amount as brothers or sisters. And so the researchers compared the similarity of the portfolios held by the identical twins and by the fraternal twins, which are essentially like, you know, just siblings. And that enabled the economists to estimate the extent to which the same combination of genes were associated with similar portfolios. So the analysis showed that on average, stocks held by investors traded at expensive earnings ratios of 23 times or more. Um, and that was that was kind of on average. The average person held pretty expensive stocks. Mm-hmm. So the, the natural bent is to buy stocks. stocks that are more growth-oriented, that are expensive, the apples of the world. Um, Only a tenth of the investors called themselves deep-value investors and held stocks with P.E. ratios of 12 or lower. Um, A quarter of all investors were more hardcore growth-seeking investors and had very high uh, average expense ratios of of, uh, uh, P.E. ratios, excuse me, P.E. ratios of 28 times or higher. So the average investor is clearly more attracted toward growth stocks like Apple, the very expensive companies, compared to the value stocks like General Electric, for Mm -hmm. instance. Um, So the study's findings are relatively precise because it's a sample of investors is very large. And because of the Swedish tax law, they required complete disclosure of investors uh, holdings until very recently. Um, so according to the study, up to 24% of the differences in the degree to which the investor favored value versus growth can be explained away by their genetic code. Interesting. So that was pretty interesting. So a fourth of their 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 predisposition is explained by their genetics. Um, it appears that favoring cheap value stocks or fast-moving growth stocks isn't just a preference. It's at least partially an innate tendency, according to professional uh, professor Jeremy Siegel, who's a very renowned professor. Um, So the real question here, John, is, you know, should you let your experiences and your genetics dictate how you invest or should you 
you know, if you should you study it? I mean, if should you believe in something similarly? Should you believe in something just because that's how you're raised, or should you study on your own to kind of develop your own convictions? It's easy to be swayed by our predispositions and let those kind of carry us, you know, with the current of life. Um, but it's obvious to me that most people, if they're left to their own devices, they're going to be growth investors because their emotions are going to tell them to buy the winners, buy stocks with a great track record. But fortunately for us, you know, more analytical investors that create, for us, more analytical investors, that creates a great opportunity in value stocks because analytics have told us that, you know, historically value stocks have beaten growth stocks by 2 to 3% per year for the past 80 years. And naturally, analytical people, they're going to study it and they're going to be value investors. But the majority of people are not analytical. They're going to follow their emotions. They're going to follow their emotional bent to buy growth type investments and time the market. So less analytical person will believe in the proverbial pot at the you know pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. They're going to try to pick stocks and try to time their trades and try to beat the market. You have to resist that temptation and you have to follow a more disciplined analytical approach if you want to be successful. Yeah, we like we had discussed the environmental influences, they do tilt one, you know someone to a value or a growth you know, if you grew up between the ages of 18 and 25 and it was a, you were a part of the, uh, the recession, the Great Recession, then you might prefer the cheap stocks. But um, I think what we're saying here is is you got to be a little bit more analytical and step back sometimes from your experiences because it will lead you to the wrong way. Yeah, you can't let your emotions and your <clears throat> kind of predisposition, if you will, control your investing. Um, you have to have a discipline process and uh, – you know, unless you have an advisor or an investment manager who's um, has a discipline process, um, then you know even they are going to fall victim to their predispositions and their natural tendencies to want to chase hot stocks and kind of chase hot markets. Um, so the key is, you know, you have to have a more analytical process. You have to have some research and some some discipline behind your investments. Don't let your your DNA direct where you invest your money, you know, have a discipline process or hire somebody, you know, to help you mm-hmm. that has a discipline process. That's kind of the moral of the story here, but that's pretty cool research. I thought it was pretty cool research. Yep. So that leads us up here to our last thing. And that is the prescription of the week. Yeah. This prescription is to go set up a social security account online. A couple of years ago, I think back in 2015, they stopped mailing statements to anyone who was under the age of 60 and so you actually yeah. have to go on to, to ssa.gov and set up your account. And, you know, it's it's worthwhile to do that. Not only can you see your statement and estimate your benefits, which is needed for retirement planning, but you can also look at your um, earnings history, make sure that's in there properly. Exactly. Because that impacts the amount that they're going to pay you. Yeah, you definitely want to do that. And um, if you've frozen your credit like I have, um, you you won't be able to do that easily because you have to go <clears throat> to the Social Security office, I think, to actually set that up. But um, but you do need to set that up. You do need to check your earnings history, make sure it's correct, because it's really hard to fix that later on down the road if you you know don't have the records. Um, so you want to look at that every year and make sure it's correct and, and just know where you're at. Know if, Make sure you have 40 quarters and mm-hmm. you know what your benefit's going to be so you can do some proper planning for retirement. So log on. You know, look at your benefit statement at least once a year. 
That's a good prescription of the week. All right. Well, that's been this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions at info at moneymd.net. Give us a call, Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.